Welcome to the Ladywood Podcast, where two huge fans of the show and one newbie discuss the show with a feminist bent. Today, we'll be discussing the third episode of the second season, New Money, written by our girl Elizabeth Sarnoff and directed by Steve Schill, who both wrote and directed episodes this season. Yeah, talented guy. Gets to do all the things. He's a shill. <laughs> yeah, literally. Sure, he's never heard that before. Uh-huh. You, you're, Again, you are a middle school bully is what we're learning. <laughs> Did middle school bullies know the word shill? That would be kind of funny. You're a well-spoken <laughs> middle school bully. I'm a Dickensian middle school bully. <laughs> you shill. <laughs> My name is Sita Sean. I am a stand-up comedian and TV writer. I am Lynn Sternberger. I'm also a television writer. And I'm Brandi Sperry, also a writer, all writers, also the co-host of the Downton Gabby podcast. Yeah, we're all writers, but we're all doing this so, as to avoid having to write. I, <laughs> what? I think it's a great distraction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't start other projects to avoid my writing projects. Do you do that? Do no, people, no. Do people never, do that? Never. <laughs> uh, the episode that we're covering today is episode uh, three of season two. Uh, called New Money. Francis Wolcott, chief, uh, chief geologist for a powerful mining operation, arrived to shake up the status quo, beginning with Tolliver, Doherty, Burns, and Trixie fret as an ailing uh, swear agent refuses visitors and medical attention. Farnham's attempt at blackmail backfires, leaving him indebted to the new arrival. The mysterious benefactor of the Chez Amis brothel makes himself known, much to Joni's unease. So, I'm just curious, Sita, as someone who's never seen this before, how did you feel when Francis Wolcott appeared on screen? I was like, that's Cockeyed Dan! <laughs> what was his name? It wasn't a Dan. No, he was, he a... was the, the coward uh, known as Jack McCall. Jack McCall, that was yeah. his name. I don't know why I described him. Cockeyed Dan. Cock-eyed Cock-eyed Dan. <laughs> like, there's so Dan many now. Dans. <laughs> there was Bummer Dan. Yeah. <laughs> there was the, uh, there's obviously Doherty Dan. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Slippery Dan. Slippery Dan was a Dan. I wish we could have known how we got that name. <laughs> Slippery Dan. Okay. And then, so you did identify him. Right away. Right away. His face was very familiar. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't when I first watched it. And then it blew my mind when I, think I learned. because I watched it so close together. Yeah. I think if I had a year between seasons, I probably wouldn't have. I also, I didn't recall when he arrived in town. Like, I knew that he came back. I knew Francis Walcott or Mr. W was, like, a character. But for some reason, I kept plugging him into the third season in my mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like, because I thought, oh, Jack McCall season one, then they want to, like, rest the actor a little bit so that you're not so immediately like that's the same guy mm-hmm. but I don't I mean, think they care it kind no. of goes with the whole like Shakespearean theatrical mm. thing of it right yeah I hope he comes back as a woman <laughs> in the in the movie again yeah oh, just keep keep, keep bringing people as back. a woman <laughs> yeah Shakespeare you know all the female parts are played by men <laughs> that's the secret that's, that's why they don't let any pics out from the Deadwood set because yeah. that's what they're doing they're all swapping roles <laughs> they're all swapping gender roles too I'll be a gender swap Deadwood I'm here for Can this you imagine Al is a prostitute yes. in like a little lacy like a frilly little camisole or like Trixie uh, always has her boobs like almost falling out of her shirt it would be like Al's man boobs, like in a dirty long john that's been cut into some sort of <laughs> dirty long john lingerie. I think this is great. We can see Seth wearing one of Alma's like fancy yes. dresses with a bustle and everything. Yes. I just made note of Alma's clothes in these episodes in in three because I don't remember what she was wearing exactly in two. Was it still red? I think it was the wasn't it the red outfit? And yeah. then she was like getting her bone on. In now two. she's in green. 
Mm-hmm. So she went from black to red to green. Now, I think in two, she's wearing silver. It's like a that silver corsety thingy because oh. she, goes, she goes to her camp uh, yeah. with um, Ellsworth. She's so. got a rainbow going on. Yeah. yeah, she looks good. I mean, she looks like money now is yeah. what I was thinking. This green color scheme that they have working for her is very like wealthy woman about town literally mm. looks like money. Mm. She seems to be living in her power in these episodes. In her rage and in her power. I do, I, I like the real difference between the clothing that Alma wears, which is very colorful and rich compared to what the hookers are wearing. Because mm-hmm. they should be kind of like similar, but the hookers always wear such busy things. You mean the new ones? Yeah, the, the new ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wear things that are like, there's a ton of frilling stuff happening. I don't know if like men yeah. back then well, were attracted to frills. <laughs> like They're performing an image, whereas with her, it's like who she really is. Right. right? Yeah. When we are first in the Shea and Me in this episode, uh, my wife was like, they're not doing anything. They're just sitting around. And I was like, yeah, it would be boring to be a fucking slut. Like, <laughs> to be a prostitute and just there's like one rich guy in town who might come to your fancy brothel. So yeah. you just have to sit there in your corset all night. Yeah, there's a very oppressive dark vibe in there. Right. Yeah. In the Shea and Me. Even yeah. opposed to the Bella Union, which seems like re- relatively like kind of jovial. compared, And then the gem where everyone's just like... Like filthy. Yeah, it's three very, very different vibes. Yeah. And yet, I guess there's enough business in town to support three brothels. I guess. I feel like it's a big coincidence that this guy, Wolcott, happens to be coming to town and Maddie happens to, like, know... Get Joni's proposal. Yeah, mm-hmm. be in charge of the woman that he's currently obsessed with. And at the same time, get a letter from her friend from the same town. It is beyond coincidence. Yeah. It's like reverse engineering something that didn't exist when they started telling this particular plot line. This Walcott dink. I was like, okay, this is them trying to patch some sort of plot together that did not exist. Yeah. Because we, I, we I got really confused. Like, I was just, I was like, what is Walcott? So Walcott is obsessed with... A hooker from back east, which Maddie happens to bring with her, mm-hmm. and then then Maddie had the Maddie and Joni had that conversation, which I couldn't really place where the importance was, and that was uh, Joni being mad at Maddie that she didn't let her know about this about Wolcott, right? And I didn't understand the significance of Wolcott until our summary where it said that Wolcott was the mysterious benefactor that Maddie was alluding to. Which did we know that at yeah, all? They, I don't. I don't think that's even true yet like i think that's a little bit getting ahead of themselves in the summary right because she is still hoping to extract a lot more money Mm -hmm. from this guy like Mm -hmm. yes we get the feeling that he's paid her well in the past because he gets these obsessions about certain women but she seems to have a much grander plan still in mind to basically build her retirement nest egg off of this guy so it's not like he's like paying for her way out there or anything. She has a long-term plan in mind. Yeah. And besides, it was the gambling guy. Um, Eddie. Yeah. Eddie was who the, at least paid for Joni's side of things. Right. I think the implication is, is that he's the cash cow that helped Maddie even bring all these girls out and mm. that she's hoping to milk a lot more out of him. So, um, in any case, he is now in town. Francis Walcott, he's also known as Mr. W and he's getting his freak on at the brothel. Garrett Dillahunt is a delight. I I love how he's transformed in the role. But what we're told is that he is a specialist, so kinky, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who enjoys being cranky with his women. So that sounds like sociopath. You yeah, know. well, Maddie literally says she thinks that it's likely this girl that she's 
parading around for him is going to end up in a wooden box. Yeah. Yes. That was really dark. Very. <laughs> this, to me, is the least feminist moment of the episode yeah. for, I think, obvious reasons. Do not employ women who you then anticipate will be murdered by your clientele. Oh, Lynn. <laughs> As Maddie says, you don't even know her. Come on. Walcott's like all over this episode. He also uh, proposes to Sai to work together. Um, and he kind of tricks Farnham into feeling like he owes him one. And together, Sai and Far- well, not together, but Sai and Farnham are both spreading rumors throughout the camp that the camp claims won't be recognized by the new government that's being installed which I suppose is a way to free up or make available on the cheap uh, opportunities to purchase land Uh and buildings and claims so that they can move in. Right. So I kind of understand why Wolcott enlists Tolliver in this. He says, you know, they've heard of him because he's inquired at some of the same Mm -hmm. places that Hearst has. He seems to have a similar mind to Hearst on a smaller scale, according to what they've heard of him. And San Francisco's involved in some way. Right, right. And the Chinese are also involved in some way. (laughs) Yeah, so my question then is, like, how does Wolcott decide, like, instantly to tell E.B. Farnham the truth as well and get him in on Mm -hmm. spreading this rumor? Because I'm like, you just picked the two least subtle people in camp. (laughs) to try this. And I mean, maybe the Hoopleheads will believe anything that they hear, but he doesn't seem to scope them out that much before he brings them in on a pretty big scheme. Yeah, that that confused me too, because if I were writing him as a smart character, it would be like he understood that Farnham is sort of everywhere in town and like asked around first and then sort of tricked Farnham into, not tricked, but like waited for an opportunity where Farnham did want to fleece him because Farnham is a fleecer. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I would have written it. It feels like three episodes of plot that got condensed into like two scenes. Right, yeah. because that happens instantly. It's like so convenient that EB brings up the Hickok letter with mm-hmm. him and there's instantly this way that Wolcott can toy with him and fuck with him in order to get him in his debt. I don't know. <laughs> the whole thing happens like so conveniently like something about this episode all of the plot points just feel like they were sort of like reverse engineered to get Wolcott exactly where he needs to be and it's just a little clunky compared to how they usually are you think they were so psyched to have Garrett Dillahunt back and we're like we're giving him all the plot and he's got both eyes this time (laughs) (laughs) it's also a great coincidence that he happens to roll into town right when Al is indisposed yes yes that's the other thing I was going to totally point out is that as Al is sick and unable to exercise any of his powers that's when basically titles are getting taken away which is probably the most significant thing to happen in town yeah and people are either falling for it or they're getting in bed with Wolcott with no question about whether the what the bigger plan might be or what the bigger consequences might be that said they had started setting up Al's kidney stones several episodes back I oh, think since the, yeah. since the first episode of the season so uh, I buy it more I think it's really interesting yeah. I think it's a really interesting story choice to be like let's see what these characters do when they don't have Al around yeah. to help them because that's been hinted at with Dan, with Trixie, with Johnny, with all of them that they really really need Al in order to sort of navigate these waters mm-hmm. Without him, now all of them are so focused on him that they don't care what else is going on in the town. And everyone else outside of the gem is just making bad mistakes because they don't have his three steps ahead mind to help them. 
How much do you buy uh, that people don't know how to act without Al around? How much do I buy? I, I'm always a little astonished because Al is a complicated man and he's abusive mm-hmm. toward his employees. It's always a little complicated for me when they come to his defense so readily. Dan's uh, mm-hmm. unwavering kind of dedication mm-hmm. to Al. And Trixie, who, of course, was by the bedside of her injured boyfriend, um, leaves him to go check on Al and, and sort of like hand out orders. I like that Trixie kind of takes charge within the gem in mm-hmm. Al's stead. But, you know, it's just... It's complicated because he's not a good guy who mm-hmm. treats them well. Um, mm-hmm. And yet they have tons of devotion and dedication to him. I think it's very key that they decided this was the episode where Trixie would give confirmation of what we've speculated about Jewel's backstory. Yeah, I like that. That um, Al rescued her from the orphanage where they both were. And that scene of Trixie and Jane talking is just, I loved it. <laughs> It's so hilarious to watch Jane be on the outside of a drunken ranting and be yeah. like, is this what I sound like? <laughs> Completely. There's a moment where she just like pauses and then tries to go back to small talk and says, shape it up to be a nice, cool evening. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, the tables have turned. Um, and she's not even sober. She's just more sober than normal. Yeah. Um, you know, my only, I thought I was, of course, anytime there's two women having a conversation, I'm like, What's happening in Deadwood? Two women get to talk to each other. Um, it almost passes the Bechdel test, but in fact, they're talking about, just about Al. Yep. So it doesn't quite. I, yeah. It's pretty good. I would argue that the Joni and Maddie conversations pass the Bechdel test because they're talking about their own scheme, which happens to involve a man, yeah. but they're not really discussing him. And they do talk to each other about, like, hey, What's our relationship going to be going forward in this? You didn't tell me the truth, etc. So mm-hmm. I, I think there we do technically pass the Bechdel test in this episode. I am a little confused by the Shays and me like business operation part of it because I think the gem works because it's a saloon slash brothel. So like get the men liquored up mm-hmm. and get them into the brothel. The Bella Union is a casino plus brothel. So mm-hmm. it's, they're all like young brand like buildings basically where yes. there's like three different businesses together. <laughs> yes. Pizza Hut Taco Bell comedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the young brand of uh, brothels. So the Shades of Me is a specialist place, I guess, is what I think they're it's, They going are not for. busy yet. They definitely haven't found their recurring clientele, yeah. you know? Um, I feel like, didn't they send a guy away with, like, a whiff of, like, some girl skirts before? Yeah, and yeah. they said, you know, two bucks isn't going to get you anything in here. We know from Trixie's constant ravings that two bucks is the cost of a hand, hand job. job and yeah. <laughs> so... Mm, I guess it's the the thrill of the new is what they're hoping is going to bring people in. We'll see. It remains to be seen. (laughs) They're definitely not that busy. They're just standing around in a tableau half the time waiting for this one rich guy to come in. I do love that they have Basil Hayden hidden underneath the floorboards. Like, (laughs) they set that there when they were building their... Is that product placement? What was that? (laughs) Uh, I did Google it, and I was like, how oh, much is Basil Hayden these it's days? Not, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah. It's not that bad. I'm expecting it to be a lot more. <laughs> like, maybe for the, like, you know, Deadwood movie party, we can spring on some of these brands. Imagine how hard it must be to do product placement in a period piece like yeah. this, because your brand has to have, like, existed <laughs> back then. You could do Arm & Hammer, probably baking powder. Be like, the Westinghouse <laughs> telegram lines are... <laughs> yeah. It. 
Yeah. Did you do product placement for Deadwood? Contact us. We need to pick your brain. Yeah. It's um, great. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's all part of this like image that they're supposed to be, you know, catering to him so well. We have your favorite hidden away. You know, it's it's a lot. And then Joni goes into the room with him because he is mad that the woman he really wants isn't there. All part of Maddie's big thing to get him frothing at the mouth, I mm-hmm. guess. And that is such an interesting little scene, the two of them sort of flirting, kind of, with each other. I'm just going to say, Joni, this seems real dumb. You've been told that he likes to beat on girls. Mm-hmm. Is she still feeling suicidal? And she's like, whatever, my life is, you know. Yeah. And she brings a gun. I know she brings it. It just seems like, ah. Yeah, I was like, is she doing this to spite Maddie? Is she doing this because she wants to know more about this guy and how dangerous she is? You know, he Mm -hmm. is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what her motivations are there. And I think Joni's a little underwritten in her motivations sometimes. We yeah. just we see her doing interesting things, but we don't necessarily know exactly why. Agreed. And also, I have to admit, I was a little uncomfortable when she started actually acting like a prostitute. Because I'm so used to seeing her as the, like, mm-hmm. madam mm-hmm. role when mm-hmm. she was actually, like, straddling the man and unbuttoning his shirt. I was feeling some kind of way about it. Like, girl... Mm-hmm. You've come up in the world. Why are you, you don't doing have to this? Do this. <laughs> it was almost like she, it felt like she was taking one for the team, but I'm not sure what she was taking it for. Because it felt like all the other girls were a little bit scared. Maddie obviously wasn't going to because mm-hmm. he's not interested in her. Mm-hmm. So it felt like she was deflecting something. I don't know if it's taking one for the team because like, it felt like he was just going to leave, you know? Yeah. Like it didn't feel like he was mm. going to do anything much then. He was pissed that Carrie wasn't there, but he was kind of blaming it on her a little bit as as well like oh who's she fucking in Cheyenne yeah. so it makes me very curious to see who this Carrie character is going to be when she shows up I don't remember her from the the first time through I don't know by the end it seems like Wolcott sort of begrudgingly mm-hmm. respects Joni he seems amused he compliments her on coming packing heat <laughs> I don't know what that relationship's going to be like going forward he's yeah. a little bit of a Hannibal Lecter and I don't I don't know is she going to be a Clarice what's going to be going on here the other female relationship is um, Alma and her in Ms. Isring Garden right Isring Housen <laughs> we're never going to get it right no um, um, Alma throws a little fucking piece of fit yeah, in this does. episode doesn't she she is really acting out after having to break up with her boyfriend <laughs> she's pissed <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Miss Isringhausen has such a stick up her ass, but I found myself really being like, Alma, calm the fuck down. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I mean, this is after she was openly fantasizing about buying the hotel and throwing Evie Farno out on the street, which Ellsworth kind of politely tells her is what most people would keep to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do we feel about her just like acting out? feeling her power i think that's what it is she saw how big her mining operation was and she was like fuck i'm rich i can do shit i'm gonna get rid of this governance that's been bugging me and i want this hotel that i'm living in yeah it's not maybe like the best move for her kids education I, but i kind of side with alma in this like i don't like miss isringhausen so i'm kind of like yeah you are a judgmental cold fish like it's funny how if I do have sympathy for Alma in this situation, because I think she's a bit harsh, but it's she clearly is desperate for a, a girlfriend, right? Yeah, like she, she did wants, not get it. She wants to gossip about, <laughs> yeah. like, 
exactly what went down when Miss Isringhausen gave the watch back to Seth. And uh-huh. I'm like, this is kind of what women friends would do together. Yeah. Like, if your best friend, if you had an interaction with her very recent ex-boyfriend, you would indulge her and, yeah. like, go through and tell her exactly what happened and mm-hmm. analyze it with her. At least the first time. You're not going to do that a million times. But she's not getting any overtures of friendship whatsoever from Miss Isringhausen and... It's not going to work for her. It is selfish on Alma's part. But we haven't been made to like the governess. We only know her as a bit of a nuisance character so far. Like a little thorn in Alma's side. I have I have problems with this character overall. Not because she's not likable. Because I don't think every female character needs to be likable. But because it's Sarah Paulson and she's given nothing to do. And I know that she can mm. act better than what she's... Like she's just huffing around and like judging Alma. I'm like, this is not an inspiring delivery of or performance. You know what I mean? I just want her to have something else. Like when Trixie was taking care of Alma in her laudanum stupor slash recovery, it was compelling because they they were fighting about like real stakes and they both had opinions. And this one is just like, I don't know, too subtle. Yeah, her judgmentalness, like, where does it come from? Is it just she's got to stick up her ass? Like, that character is not that interesting. She's not. Yeah. It's a shame, too. Um, so she gets fired. And Ellsworth, you mentioned, Brandy, Ellsworth um, kind of, like, guiding Alma and what is appropriate and not appropriate to, like, spread around camp. Mm-hmm. He's also turned out to be a really excellent kind of, like, foreman of her claim. We see the claim, um, which I don't think we had before. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. loud. There's, like, lots of set. Mm-hmm. deck that's gone into this um she's hired like it looks like 20 to 30 men that's a lot of people that's like a big operation yeah it's a it's a tiny bit of retconning though because they did say last season that ellsworth was like not an expert in anything but gold panning and would they would need to bring someone else in oh yeah and now all of a sudden he's, he's like we're gonna need 25 rods to get to the courts and we gotta we gotta get this legal situation settled too like all of a sudden he's like advising her legally to be his, fair i think ellsworth did lose some weight and stop drinking because he looks good <laughs> undergone a bit of a makeover overall. Um, he is a little better spoken. He's a little cleaner as Sita. He got the haircut. You know, like, I feel like they're trying to um, make him less, like, origins of Deadwood man in the woods alone panning for gold and and more like a worthy foil for yeah. this other mining company that's poking into town. Um, also, my baby's back. Jane is sleeping it off underneath Bill Hickok's coat That's in, in a, a jail nice cell. Too. So yeah, I mentioned her talking to Trixie later in the episode, but first we see her and Charlie together, and that's just, like, I just love the two of them together. <laughs> Your voice <laughs> went up so high, Brandy. It's really funny when she's also like, oh, Christ, are we arrested? <laughs> she assumed both of them were arrested. <laughs> that was great. Can I get a flashback episode to a time that they got arrested together? Because I would watch that. That would be so great. <laughs> Honestly, if um, it sounds like Deadwood will wrap up entirely with this movie, but if anybody ever wanted to do a Charlie and Jane origin story miniseries, like, how fun would that be? I will watch it. I will totally suspend my disbelief about the actors being older. I don't care. Oh, you would actually cast the same actors? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. You'd be like, Robin Weigert is now 20 years old. <laughs> I watched so many seasons of Buffy when the Angels of Vampires got bloated and old. I do not care. <laughs> it's one take. Also... Let's just think about 
who could possibly rival Robin Weigert as a young Jane. That's a fun dream casting scenario. Let's just think about it. And if you have suggestions, the first person that popped in my head was Mm -hmm. Haley Steinfeld, but I think that's just because of True Grit. Because I feel like she she could do the Western style. Oh, can she get real messy? I think she could get real messy. (laughs) She's really good in True Grit. Yeah. And at the uh, have you seen Edge of Seventeen? This also. Yeah, she's really good. All right. Well, okay. Not about. We'll keep brainstorming (laughs) another time. Off mic brainstorm. Um, okay, so Jane, all she's really given to do is wake up from a hangover and then have this conversation with Trixie outside. Let's hope more is to come. And last but not least, Doc and Al. This is a saga. This is r- really hard to watch. I am unprepared for the amount of dick blood I have to see. Like, seriously. <laughs> like a bit it's, of urine in it's, it. It's, it's, yes, yeah. It's um, not pleasant stuff. So Doc He's sort of like, he thinks it's kidney stones. He needs to investigate. He takes a metal rod, which I guess it's not hot when he actually uses it on Al. But like, he's just, yeah, he's disinfecting it. He's disinfecting the rod. And then he's sticking it up Al's urethra into his bladder. bladder. Yeah, bladder stones. Oh, bladder stones. stones. Which I guess is essentially the same same thing. thing, Yeah, but I bet kidney stones you can't really operate on back in the day. And bladder stones at least you could. Yeah. And um, basically, this is what we go out on, is Al's agonized screaming, like, echoing through the thoroughfare. That yeah. is r- real rough. It's real rough. Dan's yelling, I'll fucking kill you, Doc. As if, like, the Doc <laughs> is doing this. As if he wants to be doing yeah. this. The Doc is being, this is his personal hell, having to do this. Yeah. I feel like he should retire. <laughs> After this? <laughs> yeah. There's no other doctor. I can we get another doctor? I'm worried about his mental health. I think he's going to have a stroke while this is happening. And then what's going to happen? I do think he would, you know how they're trying to find like a, a, a friend for William throughout this episode. Oh God. Um, I do feel like if Doc retired, he would very happily try to catch fish with William. Yeah, that'd be a really cute More, you know, <laughs> William's just so boring though. Ugh. I literally wrote in my notes at that scene where that other kid's talking to him. Two kids talking. Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great in a world that is as rough and aggressive mm-hmm. as that. Just the children can't. You're not giving them that stuff. Oh my god, and if I so hear one more word boring. about the trout in the stream. Yeah. I'm sorry I brought it up. Do you have like PTSD? I'm sorry I, I mentioned it. I don't care about the stream. <laughs> so any other thoughts? I do think that um, having Al indisposed has given Dan Doherty some excellent uh, material. He is hilarious when he... Oh, one of my favorite things that happened in this episode. Probably my absolute favorite. And that is in an episode that had Trixie and Jane have a conversation, was when Jewel tells Doc, like, we're breaking down the door. Oh, my God. Um, She says, Dan, you need to break the fucking door down. (laughs) Just her delivery. Yeah. The escalating hysteria of it was such a fantastic line. And um, Jewel was wonderful. And then Dan running into it and thinking he broke his shoulder. And, like, the physical comedy of his, like, bum shoulder after he Mm -hmm. runs into the door, all of it was good. All of it was great. So, yeah, it's it's great. W. Earl Brown is really good in this episode. I mean, we've called out his performance before. It's really like the way that he gives you so much sympathy for this semi-grotesque man is is fantastic. And it is hilarious the way that they have to break the door down. That's something Deadwood does so well is just have those like little moments of humor during the really serious parts. I, I mean, the it. other choice they could have made would have... 
Trixie come back and say, it's time. He's not better. He's not responding. Break down the door. Instead, they gave it to Jewel, and it was, like, such a hero moment. Yeah. And as soon as Jewel shows up, like, that's it. We've had moments with every single female character in this episode. Yes, that's true. Not a shocker. Written by Elizabeth Sarnoff. (laughs) There you go. Thank you, Liz. for women. Thank you, Liz. And one other great line of the episode, which I also think we can credit Liz with, I, I would imagine, is I'll just be here in my girl's world diddling myself. <laughs> I love that one, and then I love Trixie's fuck every fucking one of you. I wish I was a fucking tree. <laughs> <laughs> it really covers a lot of the frustration of the female experience in Deadwood between those two lines. Yes. Oh, that was great, because that was the scene where she asked... Um, what was it? It was it was about how she didn't get along with Seth, and Saul mm-hmm. wanted her to get along with Seth. Yeah, well, she seems to think that's the underlying issue, but I think Saul was really just annoyed because, once again, she offered to trade cunt for learning how to do accounts, and he's like, this is not transactional. I want to be your boyfriend. <laughs> he's a soft boy. <laughs> B-O-I. <laughs> Cinnamon roll, too good for this world. <laughs> he would be the hero of a Netflix rom-com in this day and age. Absolutely. He is um, Deadwood's Noah Centineo. <laughs> oh my god, totally. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, he's like probably right behind Ellsworth for me. It's behind El- Ellsworth? I, I'm really digging Ells- Ellsworth this season. <laughs> I mean, the weight loss looks great on him. All right. Cita's horny for Ellsworth. <laughs> the sexy He's competent, okay? He's competent. He is. He's working for a woman. Those he are the listens, things I like. Yes, he <laughs> listens to Alma. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's, it's true. It's true. All in all, I think a, a strong episode. Walcott having his hand in everything is convenient. Yeah. yeah, but it is really fun to feel like, okay, we're really setting up new arcs for this season because we didn't get much of that in the two-parter that opened things. Yeah, the two-parter really felt like, oh, we just need to have this fight between Seth and Al. And now it's like, this is the beginning of the storyline. So as a result of that, this episode felt a little disjointed to me, but then everything kind of paid off in four. So it made it worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. And we leave with Al's health up in the air. So we will be back next week. Until then... Leave us comments. Let us know who your dream uh, young adult Jane Cannery is <laughs> and uh, what you thought of Walcott's reappearance in the town. My name is Sita Shaw. You can follow me on Twitter at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. I'm Lynn Sternberger, at Lynn Sternberger. I'm Brandy Sperry, at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And you can find all of us at LadywoodCast. Thank you for listening. Bye! The best